Our reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds, Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. This is the word of the Lord. Great stories always have intricate plots, multiple characters, sometimes they're hard to follow, and you know the story is going somewhere. That's why when you're reading a great story, you're always wanting to go to the end to find out how it finishes. I just remind you of that because sometimes we forget that the book of Acts, as I've mentioned before, is a story. It really is like a novel. In this case, a divine novel concerning God's activity in the world through Jesus Christ extended by the apostles. And if we're reading this novel and we're looking at characters, we're now in chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we have three characters, some of which you've already seen, one of which you have not. The first character you heard about last week, it was Simon the Tanner. Remember the reference to Simon the Tanner when John was preaching? He spoke of Peter staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, which was an odd thing for Peter to do, because this was a Gentile who used the skin of animals and cured them for a purpose. That was an unclean activity for a Jewish believer. We also have in this story Cornelius. Now Cornelius is a Roman centurion. 
He's a man who commands at least a hundred men, perhaps more. And routinely you think of centurions in Rome as being against the people of God. But he breaks the stereotypes. He's a man who fears God and is respected by the Jewish community. And third, we have Peter. Peter, the man who Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys of this kingdom. You're going to be the leader of this thing called the church. Peter, the chief spokesman at this point in the history of the church. Peter, the miracle worker. Peter's the guy who has healed people just with his shadow along with John. He has touched people who were lame and they leaped and walked and praised God. And he's actually raised the dead. This guy's a Christian celebrity like no other. So here's the story. In two parts, basically. First, we begin with Cornelius. Cornelius, a Roman centurion, is doing everything he knows to follow God. Everything he can understand about God, he follows. But he doesn't know Jesus. As a matter of fact, he's not even a convert to the Jewish faith because he hasn't been circumcised. He's just following God through prayers and almsgiving, that is, distributing goods to the poor. And because of that, because of that, following God with all his heart, even though he didn't fully know God, following God with all his heart, an angel appears to him in a vision. And he says to him, Cornelius, I've got a word for you. Because you're faithful in following God, prayers and almsgiving, your prayers have ascended to the throne of God. God has heard your request. And God is leading you step by step in this journey of faith. And here's the next step, Cornelius. I want you to send some men from your company to Joppa, to the house of a man who's a tanner, Simon. And Peter, sometimes called Simon, is there. Ask him to come and talk to you. Now, if you're reading this like a novel, you're, you're thinking, this is fascinating. Somebody who doesn't know Peter at all, probably didn't even know his name, is given a vision by an angel to send men to Joppa to get a guy called Peter from a house of a tanner called Simon. And tell him to come back because he's got a word for you. Is that bizarre and fascinating or what? You ever had a dream like that? Nothing close. So Cornelius sends his men to find Peter. Now, again, like a good novel, you have this happening with Cornelius. And then the text switches and you have another episode and this one is with Peter. Peter is at Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner. And he's tired. And he's hungry, but it's the time of prayer. So he goes to the rooftop, which is probably a shaded location in the heat of the day, a little cooler there perhaps than other places in the house. And he goes up there to pray. Now, um, have any of you ever fallen asleep when you're supposed to be praying? I, that's the way I'm reading this, I'm just telling you. I mean, because it says Peter went up there to pray, and then it says he was hungry and he fell asleep. 
So I'm thinking, Peter's up there, however he prays, standing with hands up, and he's too tired, and he says, I think I'll just kneel down. No, I can still pray when I lay down. He's gone. (laughs) And to make it worse, he's starving, and he's waiting for a meal. Now, sometimes when you're starving and waiting for a meal, and you go into a deep sleep, you might actually think about food. It's not unreasonable. Um, Things like a steak on a grill like I had last night, or a hamburger, or you can see I'm a meat lover. Um, Other foods might come to mind. And that's what happened for Peter, except it wasn't prepared. It was just the animals. And the vision was of all these animals in this big sheet that Dan just read about. And, And Peter gets these instructions from God, and he says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. All right, now that might seem kind of odd to us. Get up, kill, and eat. Look, I'll just go to McDonald's, thank you. I don't want to kill something and then eat it. But that's what you have to do. Somebody had to do it for us, right? So the grill last night, wonderful steak. Somebody had to kill the cow. I didn't. But in that era, most of the time, you or somebody in the household killed the cow or the goat or the chicken or the sheep, and you ate the meal. So the angel says to Peter, get up kill those animals and eat them. And Peter says, you've got to be kidding me, Lord. Have you ever said that? (laughs) Yeah, I have too. Are you, maybe I got this wrong. Uh, Let me go back to sleep. (laughs) Really, God? You want me to kill those animals? Those animals that are unclean? And God says to Peter in this vision, Peter, Listen to me. He didn't say this, but he could have. Peter, this is an epic moment. Peter, this is not even about food. Instead, he said, Peter, don't call anything unclean that I call clean. And then he woke up. Dreams meant a lot more back then than they do now. If I woke up from a dream, I would just go back to sleep. Unless it was a nightmare and maybe I'd have trouble going back to sleep, but I don't think much about dreams. They did. Peter's troubled by it. And here's what I see in my mind's eye. Peter's been stretched out snoozing, maybe snoring like I do. And he has a vision. (laughs) And when he has the vision, he wakes up, and he sits up in bed, and then he sits on the corner of the bed, and he says, what in the world does this mean? Unclean animals? God telling me to eat something I never would eat? What's going on here? And about that time, let's call it a knock at the door, even though there wasn't one on the roof. Peter, before the knock happens, when Peter's trying to figure this thing out, the Spirit speaks to him and says, Peter, there's some men who have arrived downstairs, and I sent them, and I want you to go with them, because I've got a plan. 
The knock at the door brings the men into his room, which is on the top of the roof, and he goes downstairs. And he greets the men, and he says to them, I'm the one you're looking for. Because God already told him, I'm the one you're looking for, but why are you here? I only got part of the story here, you see. God told me that you were coming. I have no idea why. Can you tell me why you're here? Well, then they tell him the story of Cornelius, that he's a God-fearing Gentile and respected among the Jewish community, and they want him to go back to meet Cornelius, and Peter agrees. They stay overnight and leave the next day. And when they go to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius hears they're on their way, he gathers all his family into probably a pretty big room. And Peter comes in to greet them. And when he does, Cornelius, get this, centurion of a hundred men, powerful in the Roman army, important figure that everybody would defer to in the street, when Peter walks in, Cornelius goes face down. He knew something. Not sure what he knew, but he knew something. And Peter says, get up, I'm a man just like you are. Stop that already. We've heard Peter say this before. You can't do that. It's not about me. And then Cornelius tells the story, and Peter speaks. And, and the way the text reads, it, it's a phrase that's often used to say someone stood up and made an utterance of significance. In other words, the way it's set up, Peter stands up and says, I've got something to say. Here's what I have to say, my friends. I get it. I now know, I now understand, based on what just happened with me and God on the top of that house, I understand now that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone, Jew and Greek and Gentile. He could have gone on, like Paul later said, in slave and free and male and female. I get it now, says Peter. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, he or she will be saved. And he's preaching this little mini-sermon. You know what happens while he's preaching? While he's preaching, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the group. Peter didn't give an invitation. He didn't say, this is what you do. He was just talking about the gospel. And God said, that's enough, Peter. Here I come. And he poured out his spirit on the people, and they spoke in tongues, and they received the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Fascinating story, isn't it? What's in it? I mean, besides all the intriguing characters and the plot line, in every story there's, there's lessons. And I think there's some important issues that emerge from this story. The first one is a lesson that, how to put this, a lesson that you should not assume. Here's the lesson you should not assume, according to this story. You should not assume that this story 
is about God accepting everybody just like they are in every place, in every time, without reference to their heart. God just accepts everybody. Now, you might think to yourself, now, Bob, are you, are you going over the edge? No. Let me explain it by using the words of somebody else, okay? A very eminent New Testament scholar who I read this week, and I thought, yes, I need that reminder. And I assume, since I need it, maybe you do too. It, this is a little lengthy, but hang with me. It's not hard to follow. N.T. Wright puts it this way. This is the point at which we have to be extremely careful after we see Cornelius entering the room. It would be all too easy following precisely our own late Western postmodern prejudices to imagine that the whole episode, this thing with Peter and Cornelius, that the whole episode was simply about getting rid of all distinctions and being tolerant of everyone. That would be a bad mistake, he says. If what Peter had discovered was that God simply accepts everyone the way they are, what was the fuss for Cornelius to be devout and God-fearing? Why bother? Why not just say, stay as he was before being God-fearing? People today sometimes refer to this present story as a sign that within the New Testament, there is a recognition that all religions lead to God or even that all religions are basically the same. That is certainly not what Luke intends, and both Cornelius himself and Peter himself would have been shocked at any suggestion like this. The reason Cornelius was a devout worshiper of Israel's God, listen, was precisely because he was fed up with the normal Roman gods and was eager to follow what seemed to him to be the real God. It's not the case then that God just simply accepts us as we are. Here's what God does. He invites us as we are. But responding to that invitation always involves the complete transformation which is acted out in repentance, forgiveness, baptism, and receiving the Spirit. I, um, <clears throat> I know I probably, according to some of you, quote C.S. Lewis a little too much. So, I'm going to quote him again. <laughs> From one Englishman to another. You see, sometimes I think what happens is that we're so eager for people to come to Jesus that we simplify the gospel so much that we diminish it. 
Lewis once wrote in Mere Christianity, his most famous work, in a chapter that's entitled, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? He penned these words. Listen. The Christian way is different than other religions and that sort of thing. Harder and easier, he says. Christ says, give me all. Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth and crown it or stop it, but I want to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. Turn it over to me. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. When Cornelius walks into the house, and here's the words of Peter, his heart has been prepared for a moment like this. Where he says, here it is, all of me. Or to put it another way, like many of us said, here I am with everything I got, all my sin and all my nonsense and all my history. I am worthless and dead on my own. Here I am, take me and give me life. I am dying to me. And living to you. Sometimes when we attempt to simplify the gospel, and often, friends, it comes in our approaches to evangelism. Sometimes when we attempt to simplify the gospel, we actually diminish it. The message of the gospel is unconditional love. But accepting it carries serious demands. Because you surrender yourself. It's not there just to make you a little bit better or to make you feel better about life. It's there to absolutely transform you from the inside out every day of the rest of your life. If we overemphasize one, whether it's unconditional love or serious demands of discipleship, if we overemphasize one, we lose the other and thus both. They got to be held in tension. That was all one point, by the way. <laughs> we don't want to make the mistake of just assuming God doesn't care. He cares deeply. That's why he asked for surrender. The second point, 
Okay, put on your heresy caps because I know some of you are going to get at me on this one. The gospel in the book of Acts is not primarily about individual salvation. It's real quiet in here. It's not. Look, I'm an evangelical, and I believe in the new birth, and I think it's the power of the gospel, and I think it's what drives the church, among other things, but I think it's key to driving the church. Making a personal confession of Jesus, of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I am an evangelical. I'm not always comfortable with what evangelical means in our popular culture. I've got to tell you that. But I am an evangelical at my core. However, as the church of Jesus Christ, we must remember even in personal evangelism, which is very important, we must remember that the gospel is about the plan of redemption that God has initiated in Jesus Christ for the whole world. So the gospel is not just about what God's doing for me, how God saved me. How I am spared from this, that, or the other. How God allows me to live as a holy, righteous follower of God. All those things are important. Hear me well, but that's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is not about you and me. The heart of the gospel is about God. It's about God. It's about what God is doing all over the world and you are so privileged that you can be a part of it. But if we start with me, we have the possibility in front of us of eclipsing the gospel. Third point. The gospel is not compatible with prejudice. That's pretty obvious, right? That's usually what people look at this text and take from it. There's a lot of problems with prejudice, and there's a lot of roots of prejudice. But one of the roots of prejudice is, is based on the assumption that we're special, right? That was the problem that the people of Israel had at this time. They had this notion of specialness and chosenness that excluded others. And let me warn you and me that we could have the same thing. As people who have been called by the grace of Jesus Christ, we're special. We're chosen. We're a priesthood. All those things are true in the scriptures themselves. But it's quite possible. It is quite possible that it could turn into a form of prejudice. We need to guard against it. Uh, prejudice is often because we feel special and we think the other is not. Prejudice is frequently fueled by ignorance. You know that, right? That's pretty obvious. Um, I'm not going to apologize for quoting C.S. Lewis this time, so here we go. This is not so much a quote about C.S. Lewis as a story about him. When he was a very young boy, he came to his father and he said, Daddy, I'm prejudiced against the French. He's an Englishman. And his father, 
quite expectedly, said to him, well, why? And little C.S. Lewis said, if I knew, it wouldn't be a prejudice. You see what he's saying? His point is that prejudice is in effect prejudging without the facts. I don't know enough about the French to be prejudiced, but I am, Father. Why? Prejudice uh, can seep into our life, and prejudice can sometimes relate to people and sometimes relate to issues. So we need to guard against it. Number four, put your heresy hat on for this one too. God's revelation is not static, but instead it's progressive. Yeah, so I can hear all the bells going off in conservative theological minds right now. Progressive revelation of God, right? Don't go where you're, you're thinking of. I'm not going over the edge. What I'm saying is this. The Word of God is not static. As a matter of fact, the Word of God is not just written, although it is there. It's the presence of Jesus Christ in the believing community, informed by the power and the wisdom of the Spirit. That's the Word of God, and here's part of it. And because of that, God is always calling the church of Jesus Christ and individuals within that church to progress, to new ventures in the faith, and yes, even to new understandings of the faith. That's what God has always done in the church. This doesn't undermine the idea of eternal truth, okay? There are things that are absolutely eternally true, and I could read some of them from this Bible. It doesn't undermine that. Not at all. You know, when you were a kid, when I was a kid, sometimes our parents would give us a categorical no on something, right? An absolute categorical no. No questions asked, no conversation, the answer is no. Now, you were different than me, I apologize, but those were always hard moments for me. The categorical no without conversation is not me, because I'm about conversation and argumentation and all those wicked things that children are not supposed to be. And so I always wanted the answer. Sometimes the answer was categorically no, but here's the thing. Later, the same question was a yes. Was it a contradiction? No. It wasn't a contradiction for them to say no and then to say yes. It was part of the progressive revelation, can I use that word, that my parents were trying to impart to me. They were trying to teach me something about life. And sometimes they said yes just because of my age. Because it was a new stage of life. Sometimes they said yes because they thought I was ready. Sometimes, sometimes they said yes just because I accepted the no. It's, it's 
Not hard to make an analogy here, is it? To God, our Heavenly Father. And the progressive revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The church is led stage by stage to new ideas that don't contradict eternal truth, but they're different. Final thing, and I'm done. Last point is God's creative purposes may lead us into new paths with the same gospel, the new paths. I mean, think about it. Once there was a ceremonial law, and it was God's eternal law, and now there isn't. Once there was a sacrificial system, animals, blood, it was God's eternal law, and now there isn't. Replaced by Jesus Christ. Once there were priests that came from certain tribes only, that's been changed. Once there were categories, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, and that has changed. God uses creative new ways to grow His church. Again, let me emphasize, this enlightenment never should contradict the gospel. If you want a model for that, take a look at 1 Corinthians, where the people who were Christ followers thought they had a new revelation concerning how to live, and Paul said, oh no you don't. There's some things that remain true forever. Don't do that. So, at the end of the story, what's my takeaway? If Peter were here today, he might say this. He might say to the church, remind yourself that it's God's story and not yours. Two, what's God doing around you? New things. New people. Third, how can we join in that process? Those are questions, not answers. Take them and think about them and follow Christ. Let's pray. For your grace, Lord, we give you thanks. For your revelation, we are in awe. And for the progress that you walk us through as the church, we give you praise. Because you're the eternal God of the universe, our times are in your hands and, and we submit to you. Give us the wisdom to understand and the grace to submit and the love to follow. And we'll thank you in the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.